With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. What a week it's been. Leeds United lose at home and BT messed up yet again, leaving me still with no mobile reception, phone or broadband. So this show has been mainly produced from my car in a lay-by, just off the A39, with a cheese sandwich and coffee in a flask. It all felt a bit Alan Partridge. Just quickly, please go to my website, uktruecrime.com. There you'll find some really good stuff, including the most recent piece from a new podcast called Murder Dignity, written by Amy and Holly, the creators. Please go and check it out. Last week, if you recall, we looked at events in the boardroom of Queen's Park Rangers Football Club. Today, as promised, we look at one of the characters acquitted at the trial, Andy Baker. It's a story straight from the movies, from how he worked the doors at top clubs to murder trials and drugs. It's really quite a tale and I love this one quote about him from a tattoo shop owner who described how everywhere he went violence and crime were never far away. He's like a fucking shitstorm. Everywhere he goes, shit happens. I'm delighted that this week's show is sponsored by Stitch Fix. Those of you who have met me will know just how stylish I am. Okay, (laughs) maybe not then, but I am now due to Stitch Fix. As you know, finding the perfect item of clothing can feel great, but shopping for it is anything other than delightful. I don't want to be trawling the shops on a Saturday afternoon when I could be watching the mighty Leeds United at Ellen Road. And the sizing on websites, well, they're a bit hit and miss, aren't they? This is where the online service from Stitch Fix helped me. After filling in a quick questionnaire about my personal style, size and wants, a personal stylist sent to my door five items of clothing, each hand-picked for me from a selection of a hundred of the best European brands including established names, cool emerging designers and exclusive brands. I loved all the choices and kept each item, but if I hadn't, I would just have sent it back free of charge. That's it, just so easy and low risk. What isn't there to like? The good news is that Stitch Fix have special offers for listeners to this podcast. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support this show by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash true right now that's stitch fix s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x dot co dot uk forward slash true and a huge thank you to all my supporters on patreon but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club that's lee pressland stephen wills erica robinson and russell easton who's increased his pledge i'm so so grateful for your support which enables me to keep producing this weekly free content. Thank you. And full-length bonus episode number 34 is coming this week. Let's quickly set some context by taking a brief look at the music we were listening to, 
or not, when the first serious event we discussed today took place, March 1998. Number one in the UK charts was star of the Eurovision, Madonna with Frozen, and in the US, Will Smith was getting jiggy with the top spot. Number one in the album charts in Australia was Matchbox 20's With Yourself or Someone Like You, with Legends Slipknot, sorry, I mean Aqua, at number two, rocking Australia with their edgy lyrics on the album Aquarium. Oh yeah. In the news this month, construction of the Millennium Dome began. Did you ever visit? No, nor me. But it does feature in today's show. Rolls-Royce was acquired by a German car manufacturer BMW and in the US, Matt Beck, a lottery accountant, killed four people. Before we start, I must reference two publications without whose excellent research this episode couldn't have been brought to you. The Cable in Bristol ran four amazing articles on Andy Baker featuring just stunning investigative journalism, as did the excellent Vice, which is where I first heard the name Andy Baker. Links to both are in the show notes. They called Andy Baker the cornerman as he took a corner from every deal he was involved in or he waited around the corner if the victims didn't pay up. Andy Baker grew up around the Epsom area of Surrey and worked as a bouncer in his younger days. He had a fair bit of chat, was a big supporter of Crystal Palace and married the wife of a London policeman, Vanessa Heather. From what we're about to hear, you can imagine there must have been some very interesting chats around the dinner table with that family. But running the doors locally is a tough competitive business, with some suggesting that it's the door people who control the access to the drugs coming into any club. In addition to this, as you know, there are no shortage of local idiots in any UK town having drunk one baby sham too many, usually with a very, very small penis, and ready to kick off. In 1991, Baker got into trouble after assaulting a person at his club. But this incident became his lucky break, as he came to the attention of Christian Arden, the boss of nightclub company, the Po Nana Group, who organised Moroccan-themed events for the very wealthy West London crowd. At the risk of stereotyping, these public schoolboys running nightclubs needed muscle to ensure that people didn't take liberties with their business and Andy Baker fitted the bill for this very, very nicely. And Andy did what out of it too, earning great money and enjoying mixing with a very glamorous set. This company expanded, developing particularly in the university towns across the M4 corridor and Andy Baker recruited and managed security teams in cities such as Reading, Cheltenham, Oxford, Marlborough, Bath, Bristol, Cardiff, Swansea and Newport. With success, Andy Baker's profile was raised and he met other big players in the nightclub business, one of whom was Howard Spooner, another wealthy ex-public schoolboy attracted to the nightclub game. His parents taught at top Scottish school, Gordonston, where he was educated along with other well-known people from the upper reaches of society, including Prince Charles. In 1994, Howard Spooner bought a Chelsea club called Embargo, later called Public, and much more recently a familiar haunt of Princes William, Harry and their set. At Embargo, Spooner employed Baker to work for him, 
describing the relationship as Baker was my security consultant who negotiated rates with security companies and made sure that we were with the right ones that didn't have gangsters behind them. Perish the thought, Mr Spooner. Perish the thought. And this relationship the two forged lasted a lifetime. They looked out for each other over the years. For example, in 1999 there was a shooting at a garage in West London and both were arrested before being released with no charges being brought. And on another occasion Spooner put up the financial guarantees when Baker was again falsely accused of kidnapping a printer who was involved in his clubs. As we will hear today, Baker in some ways seems very very unlucky as he was arrested and later acquitted of so many offences for which he was of course innocent. At Embargo, Andy Baker worked directly for a man named Gilbert Winter, a man with a devastating reputation for violence who you really wouldn't want to cross. The cable quoted someone who knew Gilbert as saying, you may not believe in God, but you'll have met the devil when you meet Gilbert. Gilbert was one of the most intimidating and fearless people ever. He was fully aware of the impact he had on people. He was always immaculate, almost dandy-like in the way he dressed and with his cane. It was said that he worked as an enforcer for the notorious Adams crime family in London and he had recently faced a jury for killing Claude Mosley, a drugs dealer who had once been an Olympic high jumper, when he was, of course, found not guilty. Claude Mosley was killed in Stoke Newington, North London, after he produced a gun in a dispute with Winter. It was alleged at Winter's trial that Winter had then stabbed him in self-defence with a samurai sword. As an indication of the fear surrounding Gilbert Winter, Prosecution witnesses preferred to go to jail for contempt rather than give evidence against Winter. But with the money floating around high-end nightclubs, there was rivalry on the doors as individuals jostled for both position and more money. This was amplified as they saw the sort of money being splashed around by their clientele and they wanted a piece of this life too. It was in 1996 that Winter headed back home to Jamaica to visit his mum and Andy Baker saw this as an opportunity to make himself indispensable to the big boss Spooner. But whilst Winter was away, Spooner sold Embargo and bought a new club not too far away in Fulham, the Leopard Lounge, alongside a number of investors. Winter was not impressed at all when he returned, and due to the work he had done for Spooner at Embargo, he saw himself as a silent investor who should get a weekly cut from the profit, and he approached Spooner threatening him with violence if he did not get a regular income from the Leopard Lounge. But as we hear so often on this podcast, when you play in these circles, the stakes are high, and in March 1998, Winter went missing. The bare facts reported on Wikipedia are as follows. On the 9th of March 1998, Winter left the house he shared with his girlfriend, driving off in her Nissan Micra. Later that day he spoke to her by phone, but did not disclose his location. Winter was never seen again, and the car was discovered abandoned in the dune. His bank account, credit card and mobile phone have not been used since. He is presumed murdered, but nobody was ever found. If you read online, you'll see many theories about what happened to Gilbert Winter. 
but I think the account I provide today is the most compelling. It was said that on his return from Jamaica, Winter was heavily on drugs and had become a liability and so had to be silenced before he caused trouble. Duncan Campbell, writing in the Guardian newspaper, compares the situation to the not dissimilar disappearance of Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell, who was helped by the Cray twins to escape from Dartmoor Jail in 1966. But Mitchell, although strong physically, was seen as a risk and a potential liability, and it was rumoured that he was invited to a van where he was shot dead. Of course, no body was ever found, and nobody was ever convicted of this murder. And rumour has it that a similar fate befell Winter. Duncan Campbell reported the following, and I quote, According to sources, Winter's behaviour was attracting too much attention, and it was decided he had to be killed. He was summoned to Islington, where a van was waiting. It was raining heavily, and Winter was anxious not to get his expensive suit wet. He borrowed an umbrella and was still protecting himself from the rain as he got into the van backwards, not seeing the men who were to kill him until it was too late. If he hadn't been worried about his suit, he would have seen who was inside and realised what was up, said the source. Murdering someone attached to the Adams family is clearly a massive risk. And sources high up in the police immediately spoke about our friend Andy Baker being a prime suspect in this murder, and this theory gained extra support in 2003 when David Duff, a solicitor who had been struck off and a former friend of both Baker and Winter, talked to police after falling out with Baker. After the falling out, Baker took out a contract on Duff's life, which meant he was taken into the witness protection programme for his own safety, where he still is today. David Duff is another interesting and central character in our story. A Scotsman born into a privileged family, he was an ambitious property lawyer who you may recall as chairman of Hibernian Football Club for a while before he lost the club to the chairman of rival Hearts. We've seen many times on this podcast that flirting with the high-profile wealthy lifestyles can have some major changes on how people behave after being exposed to that kind of lifestyle and it was the same with Duff. He was sent to prison in 1992 for mortgage fraud. On his release, he was greedy for more money and not too fussed about the law as a barrier to him earning it. In 1996, he bought Linford Studios, a music business, in South London and Andy Baker became a partner. Duff later told the cable, Baker was bright as a button, personable, not a psycho, but considered. He introduced me to Gilbert Winter who was a perfect gentleman for an Adams enforcer and who I got to agree not to kill me. The draw of the Adams family was strong for a man like Duff, who enjoyed the high-profile socialising with gangsters and people across sport and entertainment. A bit like a night out in CrimeCon, I guess. But having Baker as a partner in your business, though not without benefits, was never an easy ride. And at the start of 2003, the relationship between Duff and Baker was beginning to unravel. The beginning of the end was when Baker planned to take the assets of the ex-girlfriend of someone he had once dealt drugs with. But Duff began a relationship with this woman and didn't want it to go ahead. Baker was, as you imagine, 
less than impressed with this. And the final straw was when Duff didn't want to give Baker £50,000 from the business, which he needed to pay the legal costs of an action he was defending for kidnap and extortion. Baker made clear that if Duff didn't do as he was asked and give him the money, he would send one of his heavies, Mark Robocop Dawling, around to collect the money and sort the matter. Now, Robocop wasn't someone to mess with, not at all. He was a former squaddy and prison officer, who as a child saw his mum stab his father to death. This had shaped his life in many ways, and he was rumoured to enjoy the business of violence. When Duff knew that Robocop was heading his way, this is when he fled to the police fearing for his life. A Met risk assessment that day described Baker and his associates as having a history of violence and suspected involvement in large-scale cocaine supply and obtaining money by menaces. It also said that he was suspected of involvement in murder and firearms and had the capability to seriously harm members of the public. The kidnap and extortion case I just referred to where Baker needed 50k for his costs all came about from the club business when a new entrant, Graham Hammond, who had made money in the printing business, had bought three clubs in Manchester, Ipswich and Romford. Graham Hammond had acquired these clubs for just £2 in 2001 for an acquaintance as they had grown debts of £1.6 million. But Baker wanted these clubs. Unfortunately, Graham Hammond didn't want him to have them. Kidnap, extortion and extreme violence had always proved an efficient way to persuade rivals of Baker's point of view. But Hammond hadn't relented and after he was attacked by Baker and his gang, he went straight to the police. At the trial, Graham Hammond claimed that the three men facing trial were linked to a much larger gang that had attacked him in his home in Clapham, southwest London, and beat him repeatedly before asking for a ransom. But the jury trying them decided they had instead been trying to protect the businessman, and they returned unanimous not guilty verdicts on both counts of blackmail and kidnap. Baker seemed to do well with juries, and he walked out of court a free man, again. Meanwhile, Duff began to talk freely to detectives, and he told them that Baker had confessed to murdering Gilbert Winter at a flat in Chelsea, with the help of a long-standing friend, Jonathan Pearson, more about him later, when he discovered that Winter planned to murder Spooner when he wouldn't give him a cut in the Leopard Lounge nightclub. An insider told the cable that when Baker spoke about murdering Winter, he would say, he's in the O2, I put him there. Winter ain't never coming back. And from Baker's point of view, if he thought that Winter was heavily on drugs and a bit of a loose cannon, serious about murdering Martin Spooner, it made no sense to him to turn off the money tap and by removing Winter, he could take over Spooner's lucrative security as clubs. And someone as well-connected as Spooner would always open doors to further business opportunities. So this is why, it is alleged, he killed Gilbert Winter. Duff also told detectives that Baker was involved in another murder, this time a man named Solly Nahome, a Hatton Garden jeweller, who was allegedly the chief money launderer for the Adams criminal family. The Adams family have had long-reaching connections with Hatton Garden, 
which is close to their base in Islington. And their predominantly cash-based gems business was perfect for money laundering. Writing in the independent newspaper, Paul Lashmar and Kim Sengupta tell how Solly, full name Sol Solomon Nahom, was born in Iran in 1950. In 1961, the family, with three brothers and two sisters, moved from Burma to London and they became British citizens who were soon drawn to the jewellery trade. By the late 1980s, Solly was a well-known figure in Hatton Garden, but many learnt to keep their distance from him. One gold trader in the area was quoted as saying, Solly was a tow rag. I used to do business with him as he bought and sold a lot of gold. He was the kind of man you would not take a cheque from. And as Solly's reputation as a fixer grew, he came to the attention of the Adams family, who quickly realised that he was someone they could trust. It is alleged that he took responsibility for laundering proceeds from the Adams drug dealing, worth almost £20 million, along with other work from different clients he worked with. He was also rumoured to have been involved in the £26 million Brinks Mac gold bullion robbery at Heathrow in 1993. It was alleged that he used his contacts to help sell on some of the smelted down gold that had been stolen from the warehouse. But that whole story is for another podcast. What is absolutely clear is that for 48-year-old Solly, the work he did was financially lucrative, but he was very aware it was a dangerous environment with significant risks. And it was six months after Winter's death when Solly was murdered. He had arrived home, Leafy Street in Finchley, North London, on just another ordinary day when he saw a man wearing a helmet who'd been standing by a motorcycle suddenly head towards him. Solly was no fool and knew immediately what this meant in the world he occupied and he desperately ran to his front door but the gunman caught up with him and he stood no chance as the four bullets hit him, killing him just inches from safety. The motorbike sped off and Solly left a wife and an 11-month-old daughter who would never know her father. None of the neighbours knew of his business dealings. He was a quiet, polite man who kept himself to himself. And his brother Joseph, also a jeweller from North London, denied that Solly had links to the criminal underworld, saying he was never associated in a million years. The press was full of this murder at the time. Combined with the earlier murder of Gilbert Winter, it was seen as being a challenge to the Adams crime family from a rival gang. But was this the case? Or was Andy Baker a pivotal figure in the murder of Solly? David Duff had some astonishing information about Solly's murder, as he told detectives that Baker had mistakenly told him that Solly had been shot and killed one week before he died. Duff continued that at the time of Solly's murder, Duff and Solly were working together on a significant deal approaching half a million pounds to purchase the lease for the Connaught Rooms in central London from Terry Adams. But Baker, living up to his name, the cornerman, was taking a cut from the regular cash payments. Duff was seriously concerned. He knew just what these people were capable of. But Baker didn't seem fussed at all and told David Duff at one stage not to be concerned as Solly would soon be dead. The cable report seeing a police document 
directly linking Baker to this murder. And it was all due to a land deal in the northwest of England. The Hanging Chadder Quarry Project, which was situated between Rochdale, a favourite location of listeners to this podcast, especially the saunas of course, and Oldham. It was said that investors planned to make considerable sums from this project, firstly by selling the excavated sand to builders, and then with the Commonwealth Games coming to Manchester in 2002, this quarry could easily be filled with waste from this project. And then finally when this was complete and the land was concreted over, it would become a lorry park cash business, which would be ideal to launder significant sums of money. But as I know only too well, locals like to object to planning applications which have nothing at all to do with them. Bitter? Me? Surely not. And because of these local objections, the project didn't go ahead, and by November 1998, the Adams wanted their £300,000 investment back. And the businessman involved didn't want to pay them, but he certainly knew the risks in defaulting. I'm now going to quote directly from the cable to ensure I get the following details correct about Baker's involvement with this quarry project. Here we go. Solly Nahome was supposed to meet the Manchester businessman fronting the deal on the day he was shot. The businessman told the police he had cancelled the meeting and was on the phone to his solicitor when two men on a motorbike gunned down Solly that Friday. However, according to the police report, Detectives discovered that the businessman regularly hired a single room in Western Supermare over the weekend, but on the weekend of the murder had booked two single rooms. They couldn't identify whom the other room was for and wondered if the businessman's bodyguard had driven the killer there from London. Then the report said this. Intelligence links the businessman to an Andy Baker, who following the disappearance of Gilbert Winter took over the running of security at most of the clubs the Adams had an interest in. It is known that following the murder he received a phone call to tell him that the accountant is dead and he then in turn contacted the businessman. Baker subsequently received a large amount of cash which he used as a cash deposit on a house in the West Country. Baker is in turn linked to a Newcastle-based violent criminal who fits the description of the suspect. Baker was in London and has no alibi for the time of the shooting. Subsequent to the murder, the Newcastle man deposited 5000 in cash into his bank account. Previous to that, the account was usually in the red or with minimum funds. So what do you make of that? And Baker was also interesting the Met Police at the time, as they investigated the murder of a man called Aaron Chapman in December 2002. Chapman, who was 23, was really the wrong sort of guy to be working in a prison. He was seeing numerous women, including those involved with inmates at his jail, and his real love was the gym and working the doors, as he moonlighted as a bouncer for the Lytton Tree and the Up the Creek 2 Comedy Club in Croydon. But it was his dalliance with a well-connected woman which cost him his life. Her best friend was the daughter of a violent armed robber known as the Commander. And in next week's episode, 
we were taught more about an attack by the commander straight out of reservoir dogs. We will then explore exactly who killed we will then explore exactly who killed Aram and why, and we will find out why all these and more crimes are linked to Andy Baker. You think the events of this week are straight out of a movie? Well, you really won't want to miss the concluding episode next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please pop over to the Facebook group. We're approaching 3,500 members, so please head over and join our discussions. And to support this show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where you will find 33 bonus full-length episodes, plus other exclusive content, all for a couple of quid a month. This support helps make me sandwiches to eat in the lay-by when researching the material for this free podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UK True Crime. And please don't forget to visit the sponsor of this week's show. Just head to stitchfix.co forward slash true to get started with your new clothes. And even if you don't do any of the above or check out UKTrueCrime.com, you must of course remember one thing. Stay classy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.